Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. On April 9, 1942, Bataan fell to the Japanese. The defenders had bravely held out, but the Japanese juggernaut was unstoppable. As prisoners of war, they were forced to march many miles on what became known as the Bataan Death March, only to stop at the infamous Camp O'Donnell, where thousands died from starvation, sickness, and the brutal treatment of their captors. In the months and years that followed, thousands of American and Filipino soldiers would be subject to atrocities that few could even fathom. When MacArthur's forces returned to the Philippines in 1944-45, to there were 500 of these American prisoners in a camp called Cabanatuan on the main island of Luzon. Intelligence reports indicated that similar camps were being liquidated by the Japanese. Cabanatuan had to be liberated. This podcast will explore the fate of these prisoners of Bataan Corregidor and how 500 of them were saved in one of the most daring and heroic raids in history. After Pearl Harbor was attacked by the Japanese Empire on December 7, 1941, the Japanese inflicted a second Pearl Harbor in the Philippines, bombing key U.S. air bases on the island of Luzon. In one fell swoop, Clark, Nichols, Nielsen, Eva, Vegan, Rosales, La Union, and San Fernando were all gone. For all intents and purposes, the U.S. air forces in the Philippines were non-existent. The situation became desperate as General Douglas MacArthur's American and Filipino forces failed to stop a Japanese invasion weeks later. Falling back on War Plan Orange, MacArthur started pulling all of his forces back to positions on Bataan and Corregidor. The idea behind War Plan Orange was that American forces in these locations could hold Manila Bay until rescued by the U.S. Navy. After the devastation of Pearl Harbor, this was not possible, setting the stage for another disaster there would be no relief of the Philippines. With no hope of relief, in February 1942, MacArthur received orders from President Roosevelt to proceed to Australia and take commands of Allied forces there. MacArthur found himself in a no-win situation. If he stayed, he was disobeying his commander-in-chief. If he left for Australia, he would appear to be a general who deserted his soldiers. MacArthur followed orders and left the Philippines, making his famous I shall return promise when he reached Australia. Unbeknownst to MacArthur, there were few American forces in Australia. He had left his troops in the Philippines to their doom. After MacArthur's departure, the soldiers, sailors, and airmen who were left on Bataan Corregidor continued their stubborn resistance, but with no resupply and rations dwindling, they grew weaker every day. Casualties were also shrinking the number of effective soldiers. Led by Lieutenant General Jonathan Wainwright, many in this tattered band of soldiers suffered from malaria, malnutrition, scurvy, dengue fever, and beriberi. Because of these conditions, some were too weak to climb from their foxholds, so they lived in their own filth on Bataan. General Mazaharu Homa of Japan assumed that in these conditions, the soldiers would surrender easily. Japanese airplanes dropped hundreds of beer cans, painted red and white to symbolize the Japanese flag, behind American-Filipino lines with a surrender ultimatum inside each. The ultimatum explained, 
You have fought to the best of your ability. What disgrace is there in accepting an honorable defeat? The international law will be strictly adhered to by the Imperial Japanese forces and your excellency, and those under your command will be treated accordingly. If our reply is not received by noon, March 22, 1942, we shall consider ourselves at liberty to take any action whatsoever. General Wainwright did not reply, and the deadly slugfest continued in Bataan. On April 9th, Bataan was surrendered. When word reached MacArthur, he was furious. He had given no order for surrender. When Corregidor surrendered a month later, he angrily said Wainwright was unbalanced. Now all the men he had left behind were prisoners of war. MacArthur sobbed tears of sorrow for his men on Bataan and tears of anger over the Washington politicians he was convinced betrayed him. After the fall of Bataan, the captured soldiers began the deadly 65-mile march to reach Camp O'Donnell. Roughly 70,000 captured American and Filipino prisoners would make the Bataan Death March, thousands dying along the way from disease or mistreatment. Sometimes the Japanese would throw hand grenades at the columns of American prisoners marching. Some prisoners managed to escape in time, others were not so lucky. At this point, it was every man for himself. Starved of food and rarely stopping for water, they marched on in the scorching Pacific heat. American prisoner Leon Beck recalled the Japanese deliberately halting them in front of the artisan wells along the road and letting them get close enough to see the water, but they kept them from drinking. Anyone who made a dash for the well risked being shot or bayoneted. On the off chance prisoners found water along the march, like muddy water on the ground from caribou footprints, they would be clubbed brutally. It was a humiliating march of torture. Once the prisoners reached San Fernando, the headquarters of General Homa's 14th Army, they were assembled into groups of 500 men and shoved into small boxcars to take them to Camp O'Donnell. Of the 70,000 Filipino and American soldiers who started the march, only 54,000 reached the camp. An estimated 5,000 to 10,000 died of hunger, disease, or were murdered along the way. The prisoners were greeted by the camp commandant, Captain Yoshio Suniyoshi, who was later nicknamed Baggy Pants because of the baggy trousers he would wear. Suniyoshi would often scream at the prisoners, You are enemies of the Japanese Empire, and you are not honorable prisoners of war. You are captives and will be treated as captives. Your loved ones no longer care and have forgotten about you, just as Roosevelt and your generals have forgotten you. Anyone trying to escape will be shot. Inside the camps, groups of 115 prisoners were squeezed into barracks intended to hold 40 Filipino army recruits. As a result, many prisoners slept on the floor. Because Camp O'Donnell did not have mosquito nets or quinine to fight malaria, thousands of prisoners were plagued with high fevers, cold chills, and chattering teeth. After months of these conditions, many prisoners lost the will to live. Death became normal, and some prisoners adopted a dark sense of humor, often referring to the dead as lucky stiffs. On May 11, 1942, many prisoners were relocated. They left Camp O'Donnell, marched for hours, and were packed tightly into freight trains only to be taken to their new home, the godforsaken Cabanatuan prison camp. Here they were joined by the captives from Corregidor. In direct violation of the Geneva Convention, many prisoners were shipped across the Japanese Empire to work as slaves. These prisoners were sent to work in coal fields, unload ships, build airfields, and work in factories to produce weapons for the Japanese. The prisoners who stayed behind in Cabanatuan were split into two groups. The light-duty group, who cut tall kogan grass for the herds of water buffalo that came around the lake near the camp gate, and the heavy-duty group, who worked outside the camp on a 300-mile acre spread doing farm work. In an effort to somewhat comply with the Geneva Convention, Mori paid the prisoners 10 cents per day, and any officers above a major rank received 20 cents. This was still just a fraction of what international law had required. 
The duty of every military prisoner of war is to escape, or at least frustrate his captors to the point that the enemy has to concentrate more on holding the prisoners than the war itself. But for many in Cabanatuan, escape was really not an option. Still denied adequate food and water, if a prisoner tried to escape, he would be shot along with ten other men from his unit. Beatings were an everyday occurrence in Cabanatuan. American prisoners never cried, moaned, or begged for mercy. They just silently shook their heads in agony, according to Ralph Hibbs, who was a prisoner himself. Faced with defeat, starvation, pestilence, torture, neglect, disappointment, and hopelessness, many prisoners despaired. A few prisoners did escape, one of them being Major William Ed Dias. Dias and nine others escaped from another camp in the Philippines in April 1943. They connected with Philippine guerrillas and were taken by submarine to Australia. After meeting with MacArthur in Australia, Dias wrote an account of the atrocities committed during the death march in Camp O'Donnell. Because of the wartime security, Dias's paper had to be submitted to the War Department. From there, the Secretary of War and President Roosevelt decided to suppress his report. Albert C. MacArthur, president of the American Bataan Club, was angry that the men in Washington were trying to cover up Dias's story. He claimed that the same bankrupt politicians in Washington who had been responsible for the U.S.'s unpreparedness were trying to persuade the U.S. public by suppressing reports written about it. With public pressure mounting, President Roosevelt agreed to release some information. On January 28, 1944, the New York Times published an article titled 5,200 Americans, many more Filipinos die of starvation, torture after Bataan. This shocked and angered the entire nation. In Congress, Senator Bennett Champ Clark of Missouri screamed the Jap should be bombed out of existence and demanded the hanging of Emperor Hirohito as a war criminal. In the Pacific, MacArthur was eager to return to the Philippines. Though initially disappointed by his limited forces in Australia, from 1942 to 44, MacArthur managed to leapfrog from Australia across New Guinea. The string of victories paved the way for the return of the Philippines in 1944. He successfully landed at Leyte in October and declared, People of the Philippines, I have returned. He was speaking to the Filipino people, but also to the prisoners he had left behind years earlier. After landing in Luzon in January 1945, word reached MacArthur that Japanese on the island of Palawan had executed 850 American prisoners. Major Robert Lapham, a guerrilla commander on Luzon, let it be known that 500 Americans from Bataan Corregidor were still being held at Cabanatuan. Fearing that prisoners at Cabanatuan faced the same fate as those at Palawan, MacArthur ordered a rescue mission. The mission was dangerous and required an elite group of soldiers. To assist in the raid, Lieutenant General Walter Kruger, leader of the U.S. 6th Army, and Colonel Frederick W. Bradshaw were called in to help. As commander of the 6th Army, General Kruger had been building a special unit since 1943 called the Alamo Scouts. The Scouts were a volunteer unit akin to modern special forces. Each member had to excel in a variety of roles, so many who volunteered to become an Alamo Scout were eliminated because they could not measure up to their required training. In the Pacific, the Scouts had proven to be highly successful in obtaining information regarding enemy troops' strengths and weaknesses. All that was needed to complement the surveillance and intelligence-collecting missions of the scouts was a crack battalion trained to conduct hit-and-run raids deep behind Japanese lines. This force became known as the Rangers, led by Lieutenant Colonel Henry A. Mucci, a Pearl Harbor survivor. Mucci took command of the U.S. 98th Field Artillery Battalion and said to the soldiers, I'm going to turn you men into Rangers. From this point on, we will be known as the 6th Ranger Battalion. 
Mucci assembled 570 men, dividing them into companies consisting of 65 men each. Skilled in hand-to-hand combat, having no heavy equipment or artillery, all they carried were 32 Garand rifles, 12 carbines, 4 Browning automatic rifles, 10 Tommy guns, grenades, and a few bazookas. Mucci extensively trained his men in map reading, radio operation, and killing silently. After a few weeks of training, the Alamo scouts and rangers were ready to raid Cabanatuan. The raid was scheduled for the night of the 29th. The plan was to slip 30 miles behind enemy lines undetected, kill every enemy found in the compound, rescue the prisoners, then escort them back to American lines. Officers assisting Mucci included Captain Robert Prince, leader of the 6th Rangers C Company, which would be in charge of the stockade assault, and Lieutenant John Murphy's platoon from F Company. From the Alamo scouts, Lieutenants William Nellist and John Dove commanded two teams of five scouts, while also coordinating with local guerrillas. Mucci sent the Alamo scouts to the camp area 24 hours in advance, while he and the other men took an oath that they would rather die fighting than let the prisoners be harmed. Scouting the surrounding area had to be done in six hours to give Captain Prince enough time to finish up the assault plan. Nellist and the scouts dressed up like Filipino farmers and approached the camp. At 3 a.m. the next morning, they told Mucci the exact details he needed. The front gate was wooden, 9 feet tall, open in the middle, and there was a padlock a few feet from the ground which secured the gate. Mucci was thrilled with this detailed information. The scouts told Mucci how many enemy soldiers were in the camp and where they were, which building held the tanks, how the main gate was locked, and how many gates there were, where they were, and how they looked. Thanks to the Alamo scouts, Mucci had the camp mapped out, and after drawing up the plan of action, they decided to attack that night. Filipino guerrillas were asked to put carts along the Papanga River earlier in the night and to bring unarmed men to transport and carry any rescued prisoners who were too weak to walk. After the miles-long trek from American lines to the camp, at 4 p.m., the rangers started crawling towards the camp. When they were about 700 yards from the main gate, they got into formation. Lieutenant William O'Connell crawled towards the gate with 30 men. Lieutenant Melville Schmidt crawled with another 30. And finally, Lieutenant Murphy brought another 30 towards the rear gate. Everyone was in their position by 7.30 p.m. According to Mucci, by the grace of God, everything went according to plan. Cabanatuan Prison Camp was 600 yards long and 400 yards wide, with barbed wire separating the Japanese soldiers from American prisoners. The raid began with Murphy's men firing on the guard by the rear gate. Lieutenant O'Connell's men cleared the entire open area on the right side of the camp using automatic weapons. A squad of five soldiers broke down the main gate and killed the Japanese guard. Another group, going in with a squad of five, cut some of the barbed wire fencing and set up crossfire over the right side of the camp. A team with bazookas and grenades took out Japanese tanks and trucks. Lieutenant Schmidt's men entered through the main gate and ranked the left side of the camp with automatic weapons. One squad of Murphy's men moved left as well to provide additional fire. Captain Robert Prince had a squad in reserve to get the prisoners out as quickly as possible, telling all prisoners to run towards the main gate and to help any prisoners who could not walk. Mucci stationed men 25 yards in front of the main gate to round up the rescued prisoners in groups of 50 to send them back towards Platteroos to meet the carts. Lieutenant Schmidt's men rounded up Americans in the barracks, while squads led by Sergeants James Milliken and James White cut telephone wires and knocked out radios so the Japanese couldn't receive reinforcements. Mucci's men killed 225 Japanese soldiers and only suffered minor American casualties. As expected, getting the prisoners out of the camp was a job in itself, since many were dazed, couldn't walk, and some didn't even believe they were actually being rescued. 
Overall, the Scouts and Moochies Rangers had saved 511 prisoners. One older U.S. Marine wrapped his legs around one of the Rangers carrying him and kissed him, saying repeatedly, Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy! The raid had been a success and all made it out alive, except Captain Jimmy Fisher, a medic. Fisher had been in and out of a coma since dawn. Around 11 a.m., Fisher was pronounced dead. Lieutenant Nellist, his Alamo scouts, eight rangers, and a couple hundred Filipino civilians stood around his open grave while Father Hugh Kennedy conducted his funeral service. On his grave, the Filipinos put up a handmade sign at the entrance of a grove of palms a hundred yards away that read, Dr. Fisher Memorial Park. The carts full of prisoners eventually reached a U.S. Army hospital behind American lines where each prisoner was given food, showers, and medical treatment. On February 1st, General MacArthur visited the hospital and was greeted by veterans trying to raise enfeebled arms and salutes. In a voice choked with emotion, MacArthur announced, I'm a little late, but we finally made it. When word reached the U.S., newspapers were frantically writing stories about the heroism of the Cabanatuan raid. Major Mucci and Captain Prince were awarded Distinguished Service Crosses, the nation's second-highest award for valor. Other officers received Silver Stars, and the enlisted men received Bronze Stars for their historic achievement. Upon return to the United States, Captain Prince and a few soldiers even enjoyed lunch with Vice President Harry Truman. All of the soldiers, prisoners included, experienced cheering crowds, radio appearances, newspaper reports, photographs, and handshaking governors and important mayors. For the prisoners, liberation brought its own challenges. Many would be plagued with sickness and other health issues stemming from their times as prisoners. But they had survived, and a thankful nation welcomed them home. One of the rescuers, Captain Prince, explained in an interview the perception of almost all the rangers and scouts. People everywhere try to thank us. I think the thanks should go the other way. I'll be grateful for the rest of my life that I had a chance to do something in this war that was not destructive. Nothing for me can ever compare with the satisfaction I got from helping to free our prisoners. Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at Amanda. Dot Williams at Norfolk.gov.